You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. By Mark Nelson. Astounding Stories 15, March 1931, by Various. Beyond the Vanishing Point, by Ray Cummings. Chapter 1. The Fragment of Quartz. It was shortly after noon of December 31, 1960, when the series of weird and startling events began which took me into the tiny world of an atom of gold, beyond the vanishing point, beyond the range of even the highest-powered electric microscope. My name is George Randolph. I was, that momentous afternoon, assistant chemist for the Ajax International Dye Company, with main offices in New York City. It was 12.20 when the local exchange call sorter announced Alan's connection from Quebec. "'You, George? Look here! We've got to have you up here at once. Chateau Frontenac, Quebec. Will you come?' I could see his face imaged in the little mirror on my desk. The anxiety, tenseness in his voice, was duplicated in his expression. "'Well,' I began, "'you must, George. Babs and I need you. See here.' He tried at first to make it sound like an invitation for a New Year's Eve holiday, but I knew it was not that. Alan and Barbara Kent were my best friends. They were twins, eighteen years old. I felt that Alan would always be my best friend, but for Babs my hopes, longings went far deeper, though as yet I had never brought myself to the point of telling her so. "'I'd like to come, Alan, but you must. George, I can't tell you over the public air. It's... I've seen him. He's diabolical. I know it now. Him? It could only mean, of all the world, one person. He's here, he went on, near here. We've seen him today. I didn't want to tell you, but that's why we came. It seemed a long chance, but it's he. I'm positive. I was staring at the image of Alan's eyes. It would seem that there was horror in them and in his voice. "'God, George, it's weird, weird, I tell you. His looks, he—oh, I can't tell you now. Only come!' I was busy at the office in spite of the holiday season, but I dropped everything and went. By one o'clock that afternoon I was wheeling my little sport midge from its cage on the roof of the Metropole building and went into the air. It was a cold, gray afternoon, with the feeling of coming snow. I made a good two hundred and fifty miles at first, taking the northbound through traffic lane, which today the meteorological conditions had placed at sixty-two hundred feet altitude. Flying is largely automatic. There was not enough traffic to bother me. The details of leaving the office so hastily had been too engrossing for thought of Allen and Babs. But now, in my little pit at the controls, my mind flung ahead. They had located him. That meant Franz Poulter, for whom we had been searching nearly four years. And my memory went back into the past with vivid vision. The Kents, four years ago, were living on Long Island. Allen and Babs were fourteen years old, and I was seventeen. Even then, Babs represented to me all that was desirable in girlhood. I lived in a neighboring house that summer and saw them every day. To my adolescent mind a thrilling mystery hung upon the Kent family. The mother was dead. Dr. Kent, 
father of Allan and Babs, maintained a luxurious home, with only a housekeeper and no other servant. Dr. Kent was a retired chemist. He had, in his home, a chemical laboratory in which he was working upon some mysterious problem. His children did not know what it was, nor, of course, did I. And none of us had ever been in the laboratory, except that when occasion offered we stole surreptitious peeps. I recall Dr. Kent as a kindly, iron-gray-haired gentleman. He was stern with the discipline of his children, but he loved them and was indulgent in a thousand ways. They loved him, and I, an orphan, began looking upon him almost as a father. I was interested in chemistry. He knew it and did his best to help and encourage me in my studies. There came an afternoon in the summer of 1956 when, arriving at the Kent house, I ran upon a startling scene. The only other member of the household was a young fellow of twenty-five named Franz Poulter. He was a foreigner, born, I understood, in one of the Balkan protectorates, and he was here employed by Dr. Kent as a laboratory assistant. He had been with the Kents at this time two years. Allen and Babs did not like him, nor did I. He must have been a clever, skillful chemist. No doubt he was. But in aspect he was, to us, repulsive. A hunchback, with a short, thick body, dangling arms that suggested a gorilla, barrel chest, a lump set askew on his left shoulder, and his massive head planted down with almost no neck. His face was rugged in feature, a wide mouth, a high-bridged, heavy nose and above the face a great shock of wavy black hair. It was an intelligent face, in itself not repulsive. But I think we all three feared Franz Poulter. There was always something sinister about him, quite apart from his deformity. I came that afternoon upon Babs and Poulter under a tree on the Kent lawn. Babs, at fourteen, with her long black braids down her back, bare-legged and short-skirted in a summer sport costume, was standing against the tree with Poulter facing her. They were about of a height. To my youthful imaginative mind rose the fleeting picture of a young girl in a forest menaced by a gorilla. I came upon them suddenly. I heard Poulter say, "'But I love you, and you are almost a woman. Some day you love me.' He put out his thick hand and gripped her shoulder. She tried to twist away. She was frightened, but she laughed. "'You! You're crazy!' He was suddenly holding her in his arms, and she was fighting him. I dashed forward. Babs was always a spunky sort of girl. In spite of her fear now, she kept on laughing, and she shouted, "'You! You let me go! Hunchback!' He did let her go, but in a frenzy of rage he hauled back his hand and struck her in the face. I was upon him the next second. I had him down on the lawn, punching him. But though at seventeen I was a reasonably husky lad, the hunchback, with his thick, hairy gorilla arms, proved much stronger. He heaved me off. And then the commotion brought Alan. Without waiting to find out what the trouble was, he jumped on Poulter. Between us I think we would have beaten him pretty badly. But the housekeeper summoned Dr. Kent, and the fight was over. Poulter left for good within the hour. He did not speak to any of us. But I saw him as he put his luggage into the taxi which Dr. Kent had summoned. 
I was standing silently nearby with Babs and Alan. The look he flung us as he drove away carried an unmistakable menace, the promise of vengeance. And I think now that in his warped and twisted mind he was telling himself that he would some day make Babs regret that she had laughed at his love. What happened that night none of us ever knew. Dr. Kent worked late in his laboratory. He was there when Alan and Babs and the housekeeper went to bed. He had written a note to Alan. It was found on his desk in a corner of the laboratory next morning, addressed in care of the family lawyer to be given Alan in the event his father died. It said very little. Described a tiny fragment of gold quartz rock the size of a walnut, which would be found under the giant microscope in the laboratory and told Alan to give it to the American Scientific Society to be guarded and watched very carefully. The note was found, but Dr. Kent had vanished. There had been a midnight marauder. The laboratory was on the lower floor of the house. Through one of its open windows, so the police said, an intruder had entered. There was evidence of a struggle, but it must have been short, and neither Babs, Alan, the housekeeper, nor any of the neighbors heard anything amiss and the fragment of golden quartz was gone. The police investigation came to nothing. Poulter was found in New York. He withstood the police questions. There was nothing except suspicion upon which he could be held, and he was finally released. Immediately he disappeared. Neither Alan, Babs, nor I saw Poulter again. Dr. Kent had never been heard from to this day four years later when I flew to join the twins in Quebec. And now Alan had told me that Poulter was up there. We had never ceased to believe that Dr. Kent was alive and that Poulter was the midnight marauder. And as we grew older we began to search for Poulter. It seemed to us that, now we were older, if we could once get our hands on him we could drag from him the truth in which the police had failed. The call of a traffic director in mid-Vermont brought me back from these vivid thoughts. My buzzer was clanging. A peremptory halting signal, day-beam, came darting up at me from below. It caught me and clung. I shouted down at it. "'What's the matter?' I gave my name and number and all the details in a breath. Above everything I had no wish to be halted now. "'What's the matter? I haven't done anything wrong.' "'The hell you haven't!' the director roared. Come down to three thousand. That lane's barred." I dove obediently and his beam followed me. Once more like that young fellow. But he went busy with somebody else and I didn't hear the end of his threat. I crossed into Maine in mid-afternoon. Twilight was upon me. The sky was solid lead. The landscape all up through here was gray-white with snow in the gathering darkness. I passed the city of Jackman, crossing full over it to take no chances of annoying the border officials, and a few miles further I dropped to the glaring lights of the International Inspection Field. The formalities were soon finished. I was ready to take away when Alan rushed at me. "'George, I thought I could connect here!' He gripped me. He was wild-eyed, incoherent. He waved his taxi-plane away. "'I'm going back with my friend!' George, I can't. I don't know what's happened to her. She's gone now." "'Who's gone? Babs?' "'Yes.' He pushed me into my plane and climbed in after me. "'Don't talk. Get us up. I'll tell you then. I shouldn't have left.' 
when we were up in the air, I swung on him. "'What are you talking about? Bab's gone?' I could feel myself shuddering with a nameless horror. "'I don't know what I'm talking about, George. I'm about crazy. The Quebec police think I am, anyway. I've been raising hell with them for an hour. Babs is gone. I can't find her. I don't know where she is.' He finally calmed down enough to tell me. Shortly after his radio phone to me in New York, he had missed Babs. They had had lunch in the huge hotel, and then walked on the Dufferin Terrace the famous promenade outside looking down over the lower city, the great sweep of the St. Lawrence River, and the grey-white distant Laurentian Mountains. I was to meet her inside. I went in ahead of her, but she didn't come. I went back to the terrace, and she was gone. Wasn't in our rooms, nor the lobby, nor anywhere. But it was early afternoon, in the public place of a civilized city in the daylight of Dufferin Terrace, beside the long ice toboggan slide, under the gaze of skaters on the ice rink and several hundred holiday merrymakers, a young girl could hardly be murdered or forcibly abducted without attracting some attention. The Quebec police thought the young American unduly excited over his sister, who was missing only an hour. They would do what they could if by dark she had not rejoined him. They suggested that, doubtless, the young lady had gone shopping. Maybe she did, I agreed, but in my heart I felt differently. She'll be waiting for us in the hotel when we get there, Alan. But I'm telling you, we saw Poulter this morning. He lives here, not thirty miles from Quebec. We saw him on the terrace after breakfast, recognized him at once. Did he see you? I don't know. He was lost in the crowd in a minute. But I asked a young French fellow who it was. He knew him. Told me Frank Rasker. That's the name he wears now. He was a famous man up here, well-known, immensely rich. I don't know if he saw us or not. What a fool I was to leave Babs alone, even for a minute! We were speeding over a white-clad valley, with a little frozen river winding down its middle. Almost full night had come. The leaden sky was low above us. It began snowing. The lights of the small villages along the river were barely visible. "'Can you land us, Alan?' "'Yes, surely. Municipal field just beyond the citadel. We can get to the hotel in five minutes. Good landing lights.' It was a flight of only half an hour. During it, Alan told me about Poulter. The hunchback, now known as Frank Rascor, owned a mine in the Laurentides, some thirty miles from Quebec City, a fabulously productive mine of gold. It was an anomaly that gold should be produced in this region. No vein of gold-bearing rock had been found except the one on Poulter's property. Allen had seen a newspaper account of the strangeness of it, and just upon the chance had come to Quebec, seen Frank Rascor on the Dufferin Terrace, and recognized him as Poulter. Again my thoughts went back into the past. Had Poulter stolen that missing fragment of golden quartz the size of a walnut which had been beneath Dr. Kent's microscope? We always thought so. Dr. Kent had some secret, some great problem upon which he was working. Poulter, his assistant, had evidently known, or partially known, its details. And now, four years later, Poulter was immensely rich, with a gold mine in mountains where there was no other such evidence of gold. I seemed to see some connection. 
Alan, I knew, was groping with a dim idea, so strange he hardly dared voice it. I tell you it's weird, George, the sight of him, Poulter. Heavens, one could mistake that hunchback, and his face, his features, just the same as when we knew him. Then what's weird? I demanded. His age! There was a queer solemn hush in Alan's voice. George, when we knew Poulter, he was about twenty-five, wasn't he? Well, that was four years ago. But he isn't twenty-nine now. I swear it's the same man, but he isn't around thirty. Don't ask me what I'm talking about, I don't know, but he isn't thirty. He's nearer fifty. Unnatural, weird. I felt it, and so did Babs, just that brief look we had at him. I did not answer. My attention was managing the plane. The lights of Seville were under us. Beyond the city cliffs, the St. Lawrence lay in its deep valley and the Quebec lights, the light-dotted ramparts with the terrace and the great fortress-like hotel showed across the river. "'Better take the stick, Ellen. I don't know where the field is. And don't you worry about Babs. She'll be back by now.' But she was not. We went to the two connecting rooms in the tower of the hotel which Ellen and Babs had engaged. We inquired with half a dozen phone calls. No one had seen or heard from her. The Quebec police were sending a man up to talk to Alan. "'Well, we won't be here,' Alan called to me. He was standing by the window in Babs' room. He was trembling too much to use the phone. I hung up the receiver and went through the connecting door to join him. Babs' room. It sent a pang through me. A few of her garments were lying around. A negligee was laid out on the dainty little bed. A velvet boudoir doll. She had always loved them stood on the dresser. Upon this hotel room, in a day, she had impressed her personality. Her perfume was in the air, and now she was gone. "'We won't be here,' Alan was repeating. He gripped me at the window. "'Look!' In his hand was an ugly-looking, smokeless, soundless automatic of the Essen type. "'And I've got another for you. Brought them up with me.' His face was white and drawn but his hands abruptly were steady. The tremble was gone out of his voice. "'I'm going after him. George, now. Understand that? Now. His place is only thirty miles from here, out there in the mountains. You can see it in the daylight. A wall around his property and a stone castle which he built in the middle of it. A gold mine? Hell!' There was nothing to be seen now out of the window but the snow-filled darkness, the blurred lights of Lower Quebec, and the line of dock lights five hundred feet under us. "'Will you fly me, George?' "'Of course.' I was the one trembling now. The cool feel of the automatic which Alan thrust into my hand seemed suddenly to crystallize Bab's danger. I was here in her room, with the scent of her perfume around it, and this deadly weapon was needed. But the trembling was gone in a moment. "'Yes, of course, Alan.' No use talking to the police. You can't get a search warrant to ransack the castle of a rich man just because you can't find your sister. Come on. You can tell me what this place is like as we go. Bundled in our flying suits, we hurried from the hotel, climbed the citadel slope of the landing field, and in ten minutes were again in the air. The wind sucked at us. The snow now was falling with thick, huge flakes. 
directed by Alan, I headed out over the ice-filled St. Lawrence, past the frozen Isle d'Orleans, toward Poulter's mysterious mountain castle. Suddenly Alan burst out, "'I know what father's secret was, George. I can piece it together now, from the little things that were meaningless when I was a kid.' He invented the electromicroscope. You know that. The infinitely small fascinated him. I remember he once said that if we could see far enough down into smallness, we would come upon human life." Alan's low, tense voice was more vehement than I had ever heard it before. "'It's clear to me now, George, that little fragment of golden quartz which he wanted me to be so careful of contained a world with human inhabitants. Father knew it or suspected it, and I think the chemical problem on which he was working aimed for some drug. I know it was a drug they were compounding. Poulter said so once, a radioactive drug. I remember listening at the door. A drug, George, capable of making a human being infinitely small." I did not answer when momentarily Alan paused. So strange a thing! My mind whirled with it, struggled to encompass it and like the meaningless pieces of a puzzle dropping so easily into place when the key pieces fitted. I saw Poulter stealing that fragment of gold, abducting Dr. Kent, perhaps because Poulter himself was not fully acquainted with the secret. And now Poulter, up here with a fabulously rich gold mine, and Babs, abducted by him, to be taken, where? It set me shuddering. Ellen, That's what it was! Alan reiterated, and Poulter, here now with what he calls a mine. It isn't a mine, it's a laboratory. He's got father, too, hidden God knows where. And now Babs. We've got to get them, George. The police can't help us. It's just you and me to fight this thing. And it's diabolical. End of chapter 1 Thank you, everyone, for being patient for these these uh, current and upcoming episodes. Uh, had a rash of sickness and uh, family issues currently, and yeah. So uh, I I now present you with uh, March and early April on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. We would also like to welcome Gretchen Martin uh, to the cast of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. She is, our, I don't know, I, I, I guess uh, one of our, our, our other horror movie experts in uh, comics uh, and uh, uh, manga and uh, a lot of uh, other stuff. And, yeah, no, no, uh, so welcome Gretchen, and check us out on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos at PGTTCM, PGTTCM.com, at PGTTCM.com, uh, just search any of those, you'll find us eventually. <laughs> We're on Facebook. Twitter, YouTube, um, Instagram, and Gretchen's on Gretchen is Weird, I believe, on Instagram. So check her out. Uh, Dave's Corner of the Universe is Dave's website. 
Uh, he's not linking anything from us to him, but we link to him. So check out his past articles. Give him some love. Maybe he'll write some more stuff. All right. Thank you, everyone. And uh, if you like this show, share it. Let other people know that you like it. Uh, let me know if you like it. Uh, you can contact us at pgttcm at gmail.com. If you S-A-S-E us a envelope, we will send you some stickers or something. And yeah, so thank you. Contact, uh, message me for a uh, uh, address. And uh, we'll talk to you in the future. And uh, keep, keep, keep it weird. Stay squiggly. And, uh, yeah.